Anyway, thank you guys for being here today. If you're visiting, special thanks to you. Uh, we hope that you enjoy it. Um, anyway, if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. You can find Ecclesiastes after Proverbs and before Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. There after Psalms also. And uh, as you're turning there, uh, I do hope you had a good week. I hope you had a safe, kind of a festive 4th of July. You enjoyed yourself. Um, just a little bit about this series that we started last week. If you missed, we started the series in Ecclesiastes with a super uplifting sermon called Everything is Meaningless. Uh, and it was far more uplifting than it sounds. I had uh, dear brother Shane McClellan text me later and he's like, man, that was, uh, that was super simple. He said, but it's profound the more you think about it. He said, it's the key to life, you know. So anyway, but I, uh, it, it was a, it was a good, good start. The reason we started there is because it just starts off immediately, um, most likely Solomon, if you want to go back and listen to why we believe that you can, um, is writing and he's addressing a congregation. It's the preacher to a congregation. He's writing, he says, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And what he's saying is essentially like we just sang, holy of holies, uh, that whole idea there is it's as much of what you're saying as it can be. So the word vanity means meaningless. And so he's literally saying it's meaningless of meaninglessness. <laughs> like it's, it's the most meaningless it could be. And he's talking, saying that everything is meaningless. Now what's the reason for this? And then we kind of dove into this, and this is, uh, if you want a quick summary of last week, I guess this would kind of be it. The reason that, that we find everything is meaningless, the reason that the author found everything is meaningless, the reason he writes these things down as a guide for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is so that God can use the meaninglessness that is being pointed out to us. He can use that to drive us to himself. Now, the reason that's important is because it's only in him that we find meaning. He's the only true meaningful life. Amen? Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life more abundantly. He's saying, I am the place you find life. All right? Jesus also said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other way to heaven. All right? So we, we talked some about those things. And each week we're going to look at the meaninglessness of something. <laughs> All right? This is just the way Ecclesiastes kind of ebbs and flows. Next week it'll be about time. Time is meaningless. I think you'll really enjoy it. It's going to be good. Uh, but the way we find meaning in these meaningless things is, is that we find Jesus in these things. We, we go to Christ. And so it's by finding Jesus that we'll find meaning. So today, I want to talk to you about uh, three things. Pleasure and, and wisdom. And, and we're going to talk about how the American dream is meaningless. And, and without Jesus. And so I know you're all intrigued now, so let's, let's pray, ask for the Lord's help. Father, we love you. Uh, Holy Spirit, without your guide now, uh, our gathering together would be meaningless. Uh, it, would, it might feel good, it might make us happy, we might enjoy singing a song or two and hearing, hearing some jokes and laughing together, Lord, but without you now teaching us our hearts, instructing us, helping us to grow in you, saving lost sinners today we are we are here for nothing and so we ask now for your help we ask for your intervention 
into our monotonous life. Would you infuse life in us today? In Jesus' name, amen. I read an article this week called Song Lyrics That Are Lying to Us. Song Lyrics That Are Lying to Us. Number one on the list was I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones. And I thought that was funny because I mentioned that last week in the sermon. But the beef with the song was this, that if Mick Jagger, the lead singer of an internationally known rock band back in the 60s, if he can't get no satisfaction, then it leaves no room for the rest of us to hope for any kind of gratification in life. And so I, I think that that Mick, though, was probably more prophetic than even he realized, right? He was just writing a song. He was talking about the way he felt. But I think that it was more prophetic. I think that Solomon would agree that the real beef with this, with this idea, it ought to be, why would we think that we can get satisfaction from anything in this world? Why would we think that anything in this world would give us the satisfaction we so desperately desire? But that doesn't stop us, any of us, from pursuing satisfaction. Just think about it. After every famous person's suicide, you hear people griping. Why? Well, my gosh, if I had everything that they had, or if I even had half of what that person had, I'd be the happiest person on the planet. I, I would never take my life. I mean, you hear that. You probably said those things. But the truth is, no. <laughs> no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't be any happier than you are Now, as Matt Chandler wisely points out, he says, all of us subscribe to the philosophy that what will ultimately satisfy us is more of what we already have. What will ultimately satisfy us is more of what we already have. Now, for most of us, there was a time that you begged God in prayer for something, right? And He he granted your request. And now you take it for granted. Whatever it was, maybe it was a job. Maybe you begged the Lord for provision for your home. Maybe you begged for a house. Maybe you prayed hard for a spouse. Maybe you're praying now for a spouse. Maybe you prayed for children. Any number of things you've prayed and asked God for, and maybe He's granted your request, but now you take it for granted, and you're still thinking, if I just had blank, I'd truly be happy. That that would make me happy. But the truth is, nothing satisfies. We think we need more, So we work for more, we get more, only to keep wanting more because we're not happy with more. It's just more of the same thing. It's more of what makes us or what gives us or what feeds this insatiable desire that we have. That's because of an insatiable desire that our struggle with this text is that we're going to struggle with believing Solomon. All right, you're going to hear these things over and over. Vanity of vanities. You're going to hear it over and over, and you're going to struggle with, is he telling the truth? Because I don't think he's telling the truth. He, he didn't try what I'm trying, or he didn't have what I think I need to make me happy. And we're going to struggle to believe this because it grates against this inner man. It grates against our humanity. And so our struggle is believing him when he says, I've had it all, and I've done it all, and it was all meaningless. You see, the Holy Spirit inspired this book. Solomon writes this book because he wants to change our faulty thinking. Now, in modern terms, what he's doing is he's exposing the emptiness of the American dream. Now, everybody listen. I am begging you today 
I'm, I'm pleading with you today to stop for just these few moments to quiet your mind, to quiet your hunger pains, and to think deeply. To, to let go of your desire for more and more, to think deeply on these words in Ecclesiastes 2, to think about your life, and as you're thinking about your life, as you're hearing this sermon, just in your inner man, beg God to, to make these truths relevant to you today. Beg God to illuminate His Word for you in a way that would change your life. But because this message is life-changing. Not because I'm preaching it, not because I wrote it and I think it's life-changing. I'm talking about this Word in Ecclesiastes 2 can alter your life for the good. And I think it's something that we all need. So here we are. So, the American dream is meaningless without Jesus. In chapter 1, what we saw was Solomon's testimony. He's kind of setting up his testimony. He's giving a brief overlook at, at what he did, at what he pursued, at the things he went after. But at chapter 2, he's going to begin to give more details about his testimony. So let's just read verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2 together. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses, and I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun." If you're taking notes in your handout, first thing I want you to write down is that pleasure is meaningless. Pleasure is meaningless. And Solomon says, I will test you with pleasure. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Many people turn to pleasure. We, we turn to pleasure in all ways, shapes, and forms. And we do it uh, for a couple of reasons. One is it, it's to find ultimate meaning. We think that we can find ultimate meaning the happier we are, that that'll be the, 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 the best part of our existence. We see this today in uh, the sexual revolution that's kind of taking place in our day. That, that if you'll not withhold any desires from yourself, namely that your body is the ultimate pleasure, you just let it do whatever it wants to do, forget about God's commands, forget about the right ways that God created things, and just seek pleasure. You do that, and you'll be happy. 
the truth is, you're not. And so people turn to pleasure for ultimate meaning, but if not for ultimate meaning, then they turn to pleasure for distraction from a lack of meaning. Right? I want, to be ple- I want pleasure to distract me from a lack of meaning. My, my life is full of stress, or I'm in this monotonous, everyday cycle, and so I'm going to play video games for 10 hours a night and not pay attention to my kids or my family. Or I'm going to go golfing for eight hours every Saturday when that's a great day to be spending time with my family. Or I'm going to go with the ladies on a ladies' night and not spend time with my family. Whatever it is, I mean, there's all sorts of pleasures out there that we can misuse. I'm not going to harp on any one. We'll we'll talk further about pleasures here in a moment. But Solomon's goal is to determine if pleasure provides a solid basis for life. Like, is pleasure the driving force for my life? Should pleasure be what propels me in life? Is it to be the thing that I seek the most? Now, the world says, yes, absolutely it is. Go, get, do whatever you want, stomp on whoever you need to stomp on. Stop at nothing to pursue the desires of your heart, whatever they may be, right? We all feel this. We all feel the the burden of that. Even as Christians, we find ourselves wrestling with, is this a pleasure that the Lord has put into my life or is this a pleasure that I'm trying to force into my life? It requires wisdom to know the difference. But Solomon here, he, he lived larger than any of us will ever live. None of you in here are going to build a national park one day. You're not going to build cities probably, all right? Maybe you will. God bless you if you do. But I just don't see that here. But this man lived larger than any of us will, and he concludes that all of that is meaningless. And so let's just walk through a couple of the things that he tried. One, he tried laughter. Now, we all enjoy funny clips from YouTube. We enjoy movies. It's fun to get with some friends and have somebody pop off a quote from Anchorman and somebody rebut with another quote from Anchorman or The Office or whatever it is you like, and we laugh and we have fun. But laughter is not a basis for life, right? None of us thinks that laughter is the ultimate pleasure in life. We just think it's enjoyable. Solomon says, "I, I tried laughter, and it was madness. He said it can... Essentially what he's saying is it momentarily distracts us from real pain, but it cannot overcome it. Laughter is fun for a season. It's a momentary distraction, but it will not overcome real pain. So he moves to wine. Now it appears here in the text that he tried wine in wisdom, and he also tried wine in folly, meaning he tried it soberly as someone just enjoying a drink, maybe with a meal or or kind of understanding um, the right ways to use it, and then he tried it in uh, drunkenness. Some use alcohol as a numbing substance. But, but Solomon concludes that that way of life is empty. Ephesians 5, just as a quick side note on this, would back that up when it says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, alcohol, like many things in life that we can misuse, is a gift from God meant for joyous use, that can do much harm when it comes when it becomes something more to the user. When I say that, what I mean is, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. It's saying, do not use wine to find joy. Do not use wine to find peace. Do not use wine to find whatever. In fact, there are many things in the Bible that would urge you to stay away from alcohol because you could become a brawler or a drunkard or so on and so forth. So again, it takes wisdom. 
you find yourself unable to drink without becoming drunk, you are not supposed to drink. You should withhold. You should abstain. You should not be a drunk. Amen? You've never met a drunk in your life that you were envious of. That you said, man, I wish my life looked like that. Right? The same is true for weed. So we go to the Spirit for filling. We don't go to alcohol. We don't go to a hobby. We don't go to anything else for our joy or our peace. We go to the Spirit of God. It says that the fruits of the Spirit are peace and joy and love and kindness, self-control. Amen? It's just a few. But then we read where Solomon says, I did all of this till I might see what was good for the sons of man. So he's, he's looking for, what that means is he's looking for mankind's purpose. And he's doing it with this kind of question in mind that we talked about last week. If this life is all that there is, like if this is all that lays before us, then what is best for us? Then what's the best thing we can do? Like if we, if we die and that's it, there's no afterlife, then what should we give our lives to? So then he just lists all that he tried in verses 4 through 10. And I'm going to tell you, when we read verses 4 through 10, when I read verses 4 through 10, it's hard for me to not see that and think, man, I, I don't know, Solomon, that sounds like a good life. Like, I think I could be truly happy with some of that. I mean, again, look at his, his list. He built houses. He built God's house, the temple. He built a palace, which took 13 years and was bigger than God's house. He built houses and shrines for his wives. If you remember, he had 700 wives. Many of us just want a dream house. Many of us want a vacation home. Solomon had all of that. In fact, he built cities. And Solomon indulged in the best agriculture, the best architecture, and the best engineering and concluded that it was all meaningless. It's all a striving after wind. He planted vineyards. He planted gardens. He planted parks. Now, not in Minecraft like your kids do, right? I mean, it's, this is real life. We're not talking about a video game. He's literally doing all of this with his wealth. Solomon literally tried to recreate the Garden of Eden because he was looking for that one place where he could be ultimately happy but he didn't find it. It didn't work. He built an irrigation system. To this day, you can still go and see the pools. He had many slaves. Many of you would call those maids or nannies. They were hired to cook, to clean, to maintain the home, to dress him, to style him, take care of his kids. Whatever he needed, he had people to do all that for him. I mean, this sounds like the life, right? I mean, many of you have watched MTV Cribs over the years and been like, that's it right there. If I had that, I'm going to be happy forever. And he's got all that and more. And just says, I wanted more and more and more and more. And it just never was enough. He had more herds and flocks than any person before him. Now, I'm not much into cattle, but for some people, that's a big deal. He, he gathered huge wealth through silver and gold. In 2 Chronicles 9, you'll read that silver was as common as stone in Solomon's kingdom. Silver was as common as stone. That's insane. He also received tributes from other rulers. He received taxes from his own people and other provinces. He bought singers. Like, who needs an iPod when you have all the cover bands you ever need, right? He bought singers. He tried sexual pleasure. 
through wives, again, 700 of them, and concubines, which were essentially just for sex. He had 300 of those. Now, why did he have so many? Well, he had so many because the high from sex only lasted so long. And so he went from woman to woman to woman. Now, some of us are guilty of scoffing at that. Like We hear it, we're like, oh, 700 wives, 300 concubines, like that. That's just disgusting. I, I, I couldn't imagine that. But, but guys, the hard truth is, you may have not had a thousand sexual encounters, literally, but you have that or more in your internet history with porn or in romance novels. You see, Solomon outdid everything we could ever do. Even though he played out every one of his fantasies in real life, he says, whatever my eyes desired, I did not withhold from them. Nothing fulfilled. So let me ask you this question. What will make you happy? What will make you happy? A lot of us will respond in our minds, well, like, I'll be happy when, when blank. Guys, we, the Holy Spirit has ordained this moment in your life to, to show you something from God's Word that could alter your life forever. We've got to be careful. We've got to listen to Solomon, who's writing through the Spirit, saying to us, it will not work. All of your pursuits are meaningless. They're striving after wind. I got to learn what a striving after wind meant a little better this week. I was uh, hanging out with some friends, and we were, we were down at, at a river, and we had this beach ball out, and it was windy. And my kid had this beach ball and he drops it on the ground and it just takes off and it is flying down, down the, uh, the, the sandbar that we're on. And, and man, I'm chasing that thing. And I, I'm, it's taking forever. I ran at least two miles, right? And, and finally caught this thing. And, uh, and I thought to myself, my gosh, that's striving after wind right there. That's miserable. Anyway. So the world says, do not suppress your desires, you deserve it. Do whatever your heart desires. And, and Solomon is here warning us that indulging in whatever feels good is dangerous. You, you may get all you ever wanted, but you will not want it when you get it. Right? You, you may find everything that you think your heart wants, and you'll get it, only to find that, oh, well, now I need this. It's why you never make enough money. Right? It's, it's why people who make $35,000 a year say, well, if I had $40,000 a year, I'd, I'd be happy. Well, then you make $40,000 a year, and we all know we find ways to spend that. So then you're like, well, if I just had $50,000 a year, so you find a way to spend all that. And, and then you make $75,000 a year, and you're like, man, th this is it here. And before you know it, you're like, oh, if I could just make 100000 a year, if I could pick up a second job, if I could do a little bit more here or there, then, man, then I'd be happy. Guys, the truth is, we all know this is true. I think it's why it stings so much. We know that what Solomon is saying is true because we've experienced it. Listen, God, God loves you. And because He loves you, here's what He knows about life that, that we fail to see. That, that indulging under the sun leads to more brokenness. Indulging in things underneath the sun leads to brokenness. Now, what I don't want you to hear today is that pleasures are bad, that, that I'm promoting asceticism, which we talked about with Colossians, the, 
the extreme denial of things. Like that, that we're, I'm not asking you to be monks. We're not going to ask you to sell your homes and create a compound and move to that. Right? We're not doing that. Although sometimes that sounds enjoyable. But we're not after that. All right? It, it, the thing about pleasures is they can't be ultimate. One, one commentator, as I was studying through this, he, he had this to say, and I just thought it was brilliant. He said, pleasure is a good thing that if turned into a God thing becomes an enslaving thing. Pleasure is a good thing that if turned into a God thing becomes an enslaving thing. Well, if pleasures won't work, what about wisdom? Verse 12, So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can man do, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten, how the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Take the notes. Wisdom is meaningless. So pleasure wasn't enough. So now he's like, well, let me turn and live the right kind of life. I mean, hold myself upright just enough that I'll find some meaning in life. Well, in verse 12, he's essentially saying, son, don't try to do anything or don't try to outdo me because you cannot. Now, he's not bragging. He's not bragging about his ultimate lifestyle. He, he's not bragging as his life of the rich and famous. What he's saying is, is he's warning his son. You'll remember last week at the end of chapter 12, he's writing to his son. He said, don't pursue writing any more books on this. Don't pursue anything other than what you see here because this is it. There is nothing else. He says, I literally have tried everything. He lived wisely. He lived foolishly and nothing worked. He does say, however, that wisdom was more gain than foolishness. Wisdom allows you to see clearly. It's like having light in darkness or having the eyes in your head. Every one of us knows that when we have eyes in our head, we see more clear than if we don't have eyes in our head. If we walk into a dark room, we see better with light than if there is no light. With wisdom, what he's saying is there's less stumbling. There's more discerning the right decision in each situation. That wisdom is of some advantage. It's of more advantage, he's saying, than folly, at least in that way. But wisdom is a mixed blessing, as we saw last week. Because with wisdom, you gain a clearer view of the tragedies in a sin-marred world. Now, I'll just use my own life as an example of this, my own walk with Christ. As I grow in the wisdom of God, as I, as I read and study and pray and ask the Lord to illuminate His Scriptures, and He does by His grace, what I see is more and more sin in myself. I, I see more and more need for a Savior. 
You see, I originally went to God's Word, went to Him for wisdom, thinking that that would be what makes life better. But what I find is, is it makes me more aware of the tragedies of the sin-marred world. I begin to see it in other people's lives more clearly than I did. If someone doesn't see those things, it's, it's really a good indication that they're unsaved. Or at the very least, that they're an immature believer. If you ask any seasoned believer in here, they'll tell you that more, with more maturity comes more desperate dependence on God. That the more mature you become, not the more independent you get, it's the more dependent you get. And that's the key. I mean, if we look at Jesus, he was the ultimate example of dependence on the Father. Re recall John with me. I did not do anything apart from what my Father commanded me. That's dependence like we don't understand. But wisdom, as great as it is in life, it still left Solomon empty. Because death happens to the wise and the unwise alike, and neither of them leaves any lasting remembrance on the world. So he says, I hated life. Now what he means is, is that life is deeply disappointing. That living with wisdom, living the right way, still doesn't leave a lasting impact. It's, it too is meaningless. It was a striving after wind. And so I, we have to conclude then, well, if we don't live on forever, we die. And if our memory doesn't live on, there is no one who's ultimately remembered forever then maybe we can leave a lasting inheritance of wealth or work for our children and the generations after us. Let's look at 18 through 23. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. And his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Man. Even work and the building of wealth is vanity. One commentator said we can consider this portion of the text the confessions of a workaholic. He said, I hated all my toil, meaning he was deeply disappointed by his work because it was going to be left to someone else, meaning that it was probably going to be squandered. And in the grand scheme of things, what he decided was, that's insignificant too. Now, all of us know that you, the old adage, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Right. But, but that doesn't stop us from working more and more to store up more one of my favorite stories about this is in Luke chapter 12. It's just a, a quick story Jesus tells starting in, in verse 13. Uh, I'll read it to you. You don't have to turn there unless you just want to. He said, someone in the crowd said to him, or it says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? 
And he said to them, take care. Now this is for all of us. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. That'll preach. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger barns because I like big barns and I cannot lie. And <laughs> he says, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, I, I, I just love like the way he talks to himself in the third person. He says, I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, the things you worked all of your life for, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Mm, a hearty warning. Even Death, even knowing that death looms, does not stop us from working. In fact, it makes us work more, right? It's like, well, I know now that at 40, I've only got maybe 35, 40 more years to live. So I need to do all that I can to start investing in retirement and build up as much wealth as I can so that my kids are taken care of. Did, did you know that storing up wealth for your kids is a bit silly? Now, Here's what I mean by this. I'm not saying we shouldn't say, I'm not saying you, shouldn't, you can't retire, none of those things, all right? Solomon's wealth didn't make it through the next generation. I'm just saying you should not put all of your life in this. Solomon's, generation did, Solomon's wealth did not make it through the next generation. His son was attacked by a foreign army and everything was stolen. Statistics today show that 60% of your wealth that you'll leave does not make it past the second generation before it is squandered. This is what Paul, or sorry, this is what Solomon means when he says, <laughs> you don't know who you leave it to. Do you leave it to someone who's wise or someone who's a fool? He's just saying it's meaningless. That there are far better things we should invest in our children than all of our hours at work building up money for them. Far more important things. One who is wise to God understands that. Understands that my money is just money. It's, it's a necessary fact of life. So I think that for the workaholic, there's no rest because that's what Solomon says. He says, even in the night, his heart does not rest. Many people are possessed by this restless ambition to achieve, right? So they put work before everything else. I'm telling you, workaholism kills more families in America, I think, than anything else. That mommy and daddy are constantly at work, and that destroys families. And they do it so that you can have more and more stuff. Now, I, I use this example a lot because it's just so freaking true. You never see anyone on their deathbed saying, man, I just wish I had worked more. Right. Nobody at the end of their life is saying, I wish I hadn't spoke to my kids so much. I wish I hadn't spent more time with them. I wish I hadn't taken them to the park and taught them how to ride their bike or throw a baseball. I wish I hadn't turned off the TV. I wish I hadn't put away my cell phone. Now, I am not 
hammering you with these things because these things are hammering me. Amen? This stuff is nailing me. I just know we can do better by God's grace. There's, there's a better way. So many people are possessed by these things, and, and you ask why. Like, okay, well, if that's true, why do we do it? Man, I wish there were a better reason than what he reveals in chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Then I saw that all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So you mean to tell me workaholism is killing families all over America today because people want to keep up with the Joneses? I'm a Jones. Let me tell you, it ain't worth keeping up with. All right, Dad? We've been saying that for years. It's just not worth it. Nothing is gained, and you cheat yourself out of rest. My gosh, don't cheat yourself out of good sleep. Solomon, in, in, in the most brutal honesty he can muster up, is exposing the failure of his experiments. He's showing us what he missed in all his efforts was simply the joys that God held out to him. Those were the things he was missing. Everything failed, so he turns to God. And what we see here is that God, is, what we see in Ecclesiastes, just kind of at a 30,000 foot view, is that God is gracious to Solomon. And, and he's gracious to us right now because he's exposing the failure of everything else to satisfy. God allows us to feel the meaninglessness of our efforts so that it may drive us to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes is a bright, flashing, neon sign showing us the foolishness, brokenness, and senselessness of life without God. Mm. We should be grateful for it. Much less than being offended, we should be excited. That, that, that here's the key to life. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to, the, to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down. Contentment in God and His gifts is the meaningful life. Contentment in God and His gifts is the meaningful life. What are God's gifts? Well, verse 24 and 25 we see, not super plainly, but we see that one, they are the blessings. And all the blessings, all the good in life, James says, all good is from God. Every good thing in life comes from God. There's nothing good in your life that did not come from God. So anything good in your life, that's a blessing from the Lord. Anything. The second thing we see as a gift is the ability to enjoy the blessings. That he gave the ability to enjoy the gifts. So from the beginning, what we see then, from the beginning of Genesis, we see our Creator God gave us blessings as a means to worship Him. 
I mean, think about it. As, as we eat, as, as we drink, as we work, as we play, as we enjoy our spouse, or you enjoy your kids, or you enjoy friendships, you enjoy whatever, it, it ought to cause us to thank God for His goodness. It ought to cause us to pause and worship Him. To stop, like the story from with Spurgeon last week, to just stop and kneel before the Lord and thank Him for things like laughter. When's the last time you thank God for the ability to laugh at something? To enjoy a joke with a friend? When's the last time you thank God for your kids or your spouse or your job? Often we just want more and more and more. We never actually thank God for what He's given us. Here's why. We are a post-Genesis 3 fall of man people. Meaning that we are sinners. And so we often fail to thank God. Instead, what we do is we look to creation for fulfillment. This is the big problem in Romans chapter 1. It's that they had turned from creator worship to creation worship. To, to navel-gazing, if you will. It became all about me, my stuff, what can I have? They became idolaters. And so have we. we. We look to creation for fulfillment, so we always want more and more, and instead we should look to the Creator who offers ultimate fulfillment. Listen, things aren't bad. Blessings aren't bad. I'm not saying stuff is bad. But the value we place on them often is bad. Be satisfied in the Creator. Maybe you make yourself a... Uh, Maybe pray to the Lord and make some kind of, not a deal, but make this resolution for your spiritual well-being that you're not going to buy something else that your heart desires, you're not going to look upon something else that your heart desires until you've learned to find contentment in what you already have. Maybe that means selling some things. Maybe what you realize is that you are in love with your stuff more than you're in love with God. If that's the case, it is totally worth getting rid of it for a while until I learn I can enjoy it in Him. Amen? I sold a Tahoe I love <laughs> because it just wasn't right for my family. So I, I, We've done this a few times in our marriage. We've also made really poor decisions in our marriage and buying things that we shouldn't have bought. This is the ebb and flow of life. It's part of the seasons you're in. I pray this would be a season for you of learning how to be content in God and His gifts. Apart from Christ, apart from the Lord, there is no enjoyment. So, everything is meaningless without Jesus, yes. But with Jesus, we can enjoy everything else in the right ways, according to the way He commands, according to the way He orchestrated and sets it up, and we can do it without being married to those things. We can do it without saying, I have to have that stuff. Because as we'll see next week, there's a time and a season for everything in life. There's a season where you'll have a lot, and there's seasons where you won't have a thing. For us, that was our first couple of years of marriage. Amen. <laughs> In verse 26, Solomon gives the reason for this reality. He says, 
Because to the one who pleases God, God gives these gifts, wisdom, knowledge, and joy. But to sinners, those who go against God's design, seeking creation rather than the Creator, they are tasked with collecting and gathering in order to give over what they collect to the one who pleases God. So there is no let up or peace for sinners. You will, as a sinner, someone separated from God, you've never trusted Him as your Savior, you're not following Him now, you don't care or rip about these things, there is no let up or peace for you. You will collect and gather for the rest of your life. You'll go to the grave doing it. Just look around you and you'll see plenty of examples of people who are doing just that. Not in here, outside of here. But they, they are in a... As a sinner, you're in a meaningless pursuit after the wind. And then finally, what this word says is that we have to, that those people will have to give what is theirs to the one who pleases God. Wait a minute. So is Solomon saying that God gives good things to good people and takes things from bad people and gives them to good people also? Uh, sort of. First, we should ask who is the one that pleases God? Let us not assume that we are Him. <laughs> The verse doesn't mean God likes good, moral people and gives them nice things. Sorry. It's just not how it works. The one who pleases God isn't the religious one trying to do good and manipulate others into giving him his stuff. Verse 12 through 14 tells us that the one who, uh, sorry, chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, told us that the one who pleases God is the one who fears God and perfectly obeys his commandments perfectly keeps His commandments. So here's the problem for every single one of us. We're not that guy. We're sinners by birth, according to Romans 5, uh, and according to the psalmist who says, in sin did my mother conceive me. But Romans 5 also says that through one man's sin, all sin, meaning we're all responsible for the sin of Adam. But if you don't want to buy into that or you're not sure about that, then in action, you're also a sinner. You have sinned in your life. Again, the Bible says very clearly in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So, so no one in here is not a sinner. No one in here is perfect. The only one man has perfectly obeyed God's commandments. His name was Jesus. And the good news, the gospel, is that if we will see our sin, our rebellion against God, if we'll look at that, and will repent of it, will turn away from that sin, turn to Jesus Christ, believe Him, meaning that we believe with our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength that Jesus is Lord, then what happens is we are united by no account of our own, but because of the grace of God, you are united to Jesus by faith so that God now, when He looks at you, He doesn't see you as a sinner destined for hell. He sees you as a sinner who has been saved by His grace through His Son. You are covered now by the blood of Jesus, meaning you now wear a robe of Christ's righteousness. A righteousness you didn't earn, you don't deserve, but that was given to you by grace through faith so that you can't boast about it. But instead we glory in the Lord who gave it to us. In Christ, God gives you great gifts. And He gives you the ability to enjoy them as we're ultimately satisfied in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Alright, so there's the present. Let's put a bow on it, right? Let's wrap this thing up. What does all this mean for us? 
Well, despite much of what you hear, and maybe even what you think you're hearing today, I, I hope that I've been clear in this, but despite much of what you hear outside of this in the Christian world, God is not a giant party pooper. All right? God is not a giant party pooper or a wet blanket. He's just not. So many, myself included, we believe or have believed that Christianity teaches us that we should reject the worldly view that happiness comes by enjoying things in the world and that instead the Bible teaches us to get rid of everything that makes us happy. If it feels good, it's probably a sin, so get rid of it. Right? But that, that's not, I'm not saying that and neither is Solomon saying that. He's not saying that you shouldn't want a house or, or that if the Lord chooses to bless you with a vacation home that you should not take that or a spouse or a family or a job or any of those things. That's not Christianity. Again, that's asceticism, which is what we looked at in Colossians where you're trying to be holy through severe self-denial. By denying yourself a bunch of things, you're saying, look at me. Look how self-denying I am. That's not holiness either. The fact of life is some people just get different blessings than other people. We can't be upset about that. Just be grateful for what we do get and learn to be content in what we get. So none of the things that were mentioned earlier, mentioned by Solomon, are necessarily evil. Music, it's great. I'm not sure there's a greater gift in the world than music. I can't play a lick. I can't sing a lick. I can play my radio. I know how to turn my record player on. I know how to work my iPod. And, and music just does something to my soul. I mean, I, I can't dance. I, I can't even do anything good or productive with music. I just love music. It's just that good. It just does something inside of me. If I'm down, it gets me up. If I'm up and I want to be down, I don't know why I'd ever want to do that. And you know, I'll just turn on some of my old punk rock music from the 90s and I'll be sad again. Be mad at my dad all over again. Be great. <laughs> Music's awesome. Laughter, case in point, it's a joy to laugh. Gardening, I got nothing, but some of you like it, right? <laughs> Sex with your spouse, with your spouse, is good and right and enjoyable. Outside of that, it leaves a wake of destruction. A wake of destruction. Alcohol can be good. Food can be good. Spurgeon loves cigars. I mean, he said, I'm going to smoke the cigar to the glory of God tonight. To him, that tobacco leaf was a gift from God. Something that he could enjoy. All of the things can be good and holy if used as God intends. But the problem is we have rebelled against God. We have turned to his creation. We are broken. We are so bent towards creation worship instead of creator worship. We are hedonist, if you want the bottom line of it. Naturally, we are hedonists. Hedonism says the chief end of man is to glorify self by enjoying creation. 
chief end of man is to glorify self by enjoying creation forever. But in Christ, what happens is you're redeemed. I mean, think about this. God is the creator. He created all the things you enjoy, right? I mean, you just read, go back and read Genesis 1 about the creation account and think about all the things he created and what that means for us today, the things we see today, the things we'll look at and be just in like chilling awe over. The Rocky Mountains and the ocean, whatever it is you like, hunting, animals, whatever you look at in your life. That's just the coolest thing in the world. God created that for your enjoyment. And we screw it up in our rebellion but in Christ, we're redeemed to properly use creation again. To, to use it in a way that we're worshiping its creator. Essentially what I'm saying is we're redeemed hedonist. Making us what John Piper calls a Christian hedonist. Christian hedonism says that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. And that we can rightly enjoy things because we're enjoying Him first. It's pointing us to the Creator. My worship's not falling on creation. My worship falls on the Creator. It rolls up to the Creator, if you will. So now, satisfied in Christ and His love, we can now enjoy life. We can enjoy our marriage. We can enjoy children and work and laughter and food and drink and gardening and I don't know why you would and building and so many other things as God intended. As C.S. Lewis reminds us, our problem is not that we desire too much. It's that we desire too little. That we've got a very narrow view of what we ought to desire. But God has a much grander view of that. So in Christ, here's what you need to know. If you are a believer in Christ, you've been raised from the dead. You are seated in heavenly places, according to Ephesians chapter 2. You have ultimate satisfaction already. You're a resident of a foreign country now. You're sojourning through this life. So enjoy life. Enjoy it now and enjoy it forever. Half-hearted Christians are not happy Christians. They're often bitter. They're often cynical. They're angry. They're crusty. And they ain't no fun to be around. An angry, bitter, crusty Christian ought to be an oxymoron. That should not be the norm. But for so many, that's the norm. <laughs> Hope in God through the Spirit and don't run after other gods. The path, that is the path to joy. I'll read just a few verses from Psalm 16 to you and I'll, I'll have you stand to your feet. 16.2 I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from You. 16.4a, the sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. 16.9, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. And 16.11, this is it. Don't miss it. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Those are not the words of a giant party pooper. Those are the words from someone who loves you 
deeply enough to show you the way life ought to be lived and to call you to repentance when you're not. It's by His grace that we're here today and hearing those words. Amen? Would you stand to your feet?